I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scans. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. A late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. Hey, cats and kittens, and welcome to episode 19 of The Debrief. I'm very glad to be with you today, off the heels of a very, very busy day, a very busy morning, uh, co-hosting The Hills Rising for the first time, and also posting what I thought were two very interesting interviews from people who have actually done the work of trying to challenge some of the worst Democrats in Congress. First, we talked to Paula Jean Swearingen, who most of you are probably familiar with, from her 2018 battle to defeat Joe Manchin. She received little to no support from the Democratic Party. In fact, no support from the Democratic Party. If you recall that year, they were extremely oppositional. They they drew a line in the sand um, that anybody who challenged an incumbent, not only would they be basically blacklisted, but any vendor that worked for them would be blacklisted from ever working for the Democratic Party again aggressive. And then, of course, she ran in the 2020 cycle for the other open seat in West Virginia. And then secondly, I interviewed a new voice on the scene. His name is Greg Marcel Dixon, and he was the first challenger in many, many, many years to try to take on uh, Jim Clyburn's seat in South Carolina's 6th district, one of the poorest districts in the entire country with the highest, some of the highest poverty metrics and lowest health metrics, a rural district, which I didn't really realize. I, I realized I hadn't really given much thought to where Jim Clyburn was from, who elected Jim Clyburn, and what his constituency was like. And it was a really re- revealing insight, both interviews, into parts of the country that don't get nearly enough attention Notably, it was very difficult to talk to both of them because broadband kept cutting out in both of our interviews, which only speaks to our broader infrastructural problems in this country. I see a long queue, and also I cannot linger and malinger too long today because I have to finish my radar for tomorrow's co-hosting segment. So let's just get right to it. Love to see Anna first in line here. How are you doing? Hi, I don't know how I got first in line. <laughs> um, <laughs> you press that button quick. <laughs> yeah, um, I just had a quick question. Um, so I'm pro-choice, um, but it's never really been lost on me why uh, evangelical families like my own care about abortion issues and vote on them. Like mm-hmm. I feel kind of sympathetic to it. So this just came to mind when I uh, read some of the comments relating to uh, to Greg's uh, interview. Um, at the end. And I guess I, one frustration I've had, and you know, if everyone wants to burn me at the stake for saying this is just that, like, I feel like there's not an acknowledgement of some of the moral complexity with that issue. Mm. Like we feel like we have to take such a hard line. Like in my community, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I'm around more like punks and artsy people who like wear things that say like abortion is a goddamn miracle and things like that. Um, But like, is there any way to like talk about messaging related to that that speaks to people that have some discomfort with abortion, I guess? 
Yeah, man, I'm glad you brought that up. So for those who might not be subscribers or might not have listened to today's episode all the way through to the end, this is something that happens at the end of Marcel's interview. I tried to do some due diligence before interviewing him and perused his website, most of which was totally solid in terms of progressive ideology. And then I hit a bullet point that said, ban all abortion. (laughs) And I said, oh, well, let me make sure this isn't a typo. You know, he doesn't have a lot of funding. You know, one word missing could, you know, change this entire phrase. So I kind of asked him at the end, hoping, I guess, that it was a typo, and it wasn't. Um, He is of the belief that uh, basically that too many black babies in particular have been killed, which has dulled our political power in this country. He made note earlier in the episode of concerns that the census wasn't accurately counting black and brown people, which there's some evidence of. Um, And as a consequence, it makes it easier for Democrats like Joe Biden to basically ignore black Americans. Remember he told uh, in that leaked Biden call that I always love to bring, um, bring up, you know, he was basically like Latinos outnumber blacks and you guys are on the outs. Uh, So I understand that that's where he's coming from. He wants to make sure that people who don't, you know, people aren't getting abortions for reasons of economic insecurity in a way that will disproportionately hurt, you know, or disproportionately end up with black and brown babies being killed. Um, yeah. It was interesting. Um, <laughs> it was interesting because I found myself asking myself the question, like, is this guy still better than Jim Clyburn? Right. Mm -hmm. And I almost felt ashamed to ask that question because, you know, abortion has for so long been the litmus test among Democrats. But I kind of found myself asking, like, this guy could be like, is his vote on something going to end Roe v. Wade? No, that's already over anyway. LOL, JK. (laughs) Um, You know, know, how much negative impact could this guy be in Congress on the issue of abortion? Probably little to none versus how much positive impact could he have? Uh, in Congress on the uh, on any number of progressive issues could be a decisive vote and help to grow this progressive voting block ostensibly if we still believe in that sort of thing. And then, of course, there's the local consequences of of his um, not being pro-choice. Certainly. It was, it, it's, an, it's an interesting it was an interesting and kind of provocative question. And I think that you're right, Anna, that a lot of there are more Democrats who feel that way than you than is acknowledged Readily, especially some more conservative church-going communities that are often black and brown, but not exclusively black and brown, right? Like you're right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I I feel like I'm um, undereducated about this, but I will say that, like, um, my when my parents talked to me about this issue. Um, and some of the kind of more um, mainstream liberals perspectives on it, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, things like that. I, mm-hmm. I'm uh, with them that that something's not being acknowledged or that their point of view is not being acknowledged in that. Um, uh, yeah, I, that's all I can really say about it. I mean, my you know, my counter argument always to them is is exactly what you said to Greg, which is um where, you know, where's all the support for these people that, <laughs> that you're going to force to be, you know, to be mothers, right? right? Like, how do we change those, uh, their um, material conditions? Like, you, right. you got to start there. Like, even but if I, I don't accept, know. 
Yeah, if I accept his rationale as being, you know, not rooted in controlling women or like patriarchy, if I, if I just accept that there is some merit to saying some women get abortions <clears throat> simply because they can't afford the child, and in an ideal world, that wouldn't be the case because right. nobody would be economically economically precarious, then you're still putting the cart before the horse. You should have a plan to make everyone not economically precarious and then that should magically get rid of all the abortions not ban abortions and then just hope and pray <laughs> because he was like well i have those other policies before that in my policy sheet i was like okay the order of your policy sheet does not <laughs> dictate the order in which we're going to get any of these things yeah. beyond which there's people who just want abortions who can afford babies and don't want them sure but would it are there progressives who say we do ultimately want to reduce the a number of abortions, or is that just like really unpopular to even give that inch? I think it is unpopular, but people say. I mean, Hillary Clinton famously said she wants abortions to be safe, legal, and rare. And even though that's kind of okay. maligned, I mean, that's obviously true, right? Nobody wants like to gallivant around. <laughs> like, it's not like uh, Oprah pointing and you get an abortion and you get an abortion and you get an abortion. Like, <laughs> right, it's right. still like a medical procedure that. Sometimes, sometimes does and sometimes doesn't have some mild or significant psychological ramifications. You know, it's not like a stroll through the park picking daisies. Right. And everyone would prefer not to have to do it. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, this shouldn't be, but, but you're right. Like there are spaces, not just on the left, but among liberals, where that is a very controversial thing to say because they've understandably had to work so hard to push back against the stigma against abortion, then there's sometimes a reluctance to admit that it's something that is at all undesirable. Right. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. I was just thinking about that. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm interested to hear what other folks in the chat have to say, but it's always nice to hear from you, Anna. Yep. Thanks, Bree. And is it Anna or am I pronouncing it? It's Anna. It's Anna. You got it. Okay, great. All right. (laughs) Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay. uh, Is this for revolution? Is this... Assange, Chris, go ahead and unmute yourself. I can't see your whole name for some reason. It is time for revolution. How you doing, Chris? I'm well. How are you, Bree? Um, I'm doing well. Hey, how, quick, why did you switch go. from your Assange handle on a, such, a day with such big Assange news? <laughs> uh, I switched it a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. I'm just messing with you. What's on your mind, Chris? Uh, it's all good. I mess with you too, so it's, I deserve to get a little bit back once in a while. Um, First off, I didn't know you were on the Hill this morning. I'm curious a little bit about that. Are you filling in for, it looks like, Ryan? Or are you mm-hmm. taking over that role? No, nope, just filling in there? for today and tomorrow. Okay. All right. I was... Uh, uh, don't take this as like too bad a criticism, but after watching how the Hill treated Crystal on Sager on their way out uh, last June... I uh, I just I can't support the hill and and rising anymore and watching how Ryan and that other gentleman um, kind of treat Kim Iverson uh, poorly. I just not super keen on that, but I hope it's a good opportunity for you and and I know you'll do great filling in for Ryan while you're there. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, go ahead. I know you'll do great. I just have critiques of the Hill and of their leadership. Um, Following up just to say something about that abortion thing. And then I had one other thing I wanted to uh, bring up. Um, 
I think abortion should be rare, and I think one of the biggest things to help that is giving access, which was a part of Obamacare, affordable access to birth control or free birth control, because mm-hmm. that's a, a, a vast majority, in my opinion, of 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 abortions are related to accidents, to people mm-hmm. didn't intend to get pregnant, got pregnant not ready for a kid have to do something about it and so if people have better access to birth control better teaching about birth control uh, rather than abstinence only education which a lot of kids receive in in schooling in this country um, I think and obviously as a male I'm a little a little hesitant to talk too much about abortion issues because it is more of a, a woman's issue, but it, it's kind of a both people, a both genders issue. It, it takes one, takes both to, to get to that situation. So uh, as far I have not seen Mr. Dixon, you and Mr. Dixon's interview yet, I will be watching it. The video is out and I appreciate you guys getting the video out, but, um, I just, you know, it's to me on like a lot of these social issues, it's like, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. If you don't like abortion, don't have an abortion. Don't infringe on other people like with your beliefs and you don't want to bake a cake for a gay couple. Don't bake a cake for them. Fine. Like move on. Like it's. You know, whatever. I don't know. That's how I feel about a lot of social issues. I'm a little libertarian on that, and that's kind of how I feel. So, on just as a follow up to your conversation with uh, Anna a few seconds ago, um, I just wanted to say that uh, I listened to a bit of your interview and haven't finished it yet with um, with uh, uh, God, what's her name, Miss. Apology, mm-hmm. um, and she's awesome. I really like Apology, and she's really an interesting person. Mm. One, I have, like I said, I haven't finished it. Did you get into anything as far as how uh, Justice Democrats treated her, mm-hmm. and how, um, and, and any of the leadership there, and how Justice Democrats have have been, frankly, not the best over the years. Yeah, she definitely brought that up, and I've heard her speak about it at depth in some other interviews as well. I know that just this past week, she did a really great lengthy interview with Sabby Sabs, so I recommend going over to Sabby Sabs' YouTube channel and watching that as well. But she's spoken about uh, how basically, although it was kind of billed like the four of the women from Burning Down the House, the film, you know, Cori Bush, uh, Amy Vieira, and um, AOC, um, that they were all kind of equally yoked and equally supported that in practice she felt like they were all fundraising money that got put into AOC's campaign and the rest of them were just props. Now that this is, you know, what she's described. I'm not, I had not independently verified, you know, verified any of that, but there seems to have been some frustration that both um, justice Democrats and the democratic party did not support those can I mean, obviously they didn't support AOC, but like the Justice Democrats were expected to support them. And then today, she's made this criticism before, but she's been pushing it today because there's a new article out that MPP published 
um, talking about all of the money that AOC raised that was dis- distributed to some of these blue dog Democrats. And I believe that's just the kind of, not to excuse it, but the pattern or practice of how all members are required to raise money that basically goes into the party coffers. But still, the reality is that progressives who do that are in a different kind of ethical place than others who are in line with the interests of the corporate Democrats. So, yeah, yeah. we have to recall with, with Justice Democrats that it was started by Jank Uger and Kyle Kalinskian. I think one of those two is better than the other, and I have critiques of both of them. Um, but, you know, I think that that's when we start talking about Justice Democrats and looking at their successes and failures, um, and the sex successes are obviously quite limited, um, unless you know, just getting somebody into the into the building is a success, which I wouldn't say it is um, at all. Um, you know, they've certainly made a lot of mistakes, and you know, I have my disagreements with Jank, and he got pushed out of of uh, Justice Democrats for his past uh, past failures as as a lefty, and I don't agree with that type of stuff. I think in hindsight, you know, Jank is Jank is one who kowtows to power and if you watch him closely he really cares more about uh, uh, having celebrity status and having money than he really does care about any progressive wins. Um, then you start to understand kind of why uh, uh, Justice Democrats have failed and why um, why AOC has been not great over the years, but yeah. Well, I'd like to actually get Jank and and Kyle on the show. I mean, Kyle's been on, but not since last fall. I mean, like fall of twenty twenty. Uh, you pushed on. Stuff. You did the you did the force the vote thing. I don't think Jank will talk to you anymore. I don't know about that. I think we're human beings who have the capacity to have a conversation. I haven't actually invited him, so I certainly don't want to presume that he wouldn't be open to it. But I love – I don't know if, you know, he and Kyle would come on at the same time, but I'd love to be able to actually talk about some of that stuff and not just cast dispersion. So. They don't really talk anymore over the Jimmy stuff, but it's just become a drama thing. Uh, Right, but that's the idea. My point is that I would love to be able to get them – past that and i think that there might be certain certain degree of openness i'm i'm pretty sure kyle would come definitely and talk about it i would definitely come talk to you i'll definitely be following up if that's the case and i appreciate you calling in as always chris awesome thank you brie you have a nice night you too keep listening all right doctor doctor it's your call good evening what's going on um yeah i find it funny that the the first uh, point of this calling um, episode uh, in a two-hour interview, the first thing I talked about the last, like, five or ten, ten minutes. <laughs> um, so um, I'm not going to ask a question about that. Um, you basically, re- uh, you two, you and Anna, basically reiterated, uh, reiterated what I was already thinking when I listened to the interview a couple hours ago. But um, so I'm just bring up two, two points. Um, first one is more of a comment. Second like was a question, um, like a gaming idea. Um, so uh, I wanted to address uh, something from the last call-in. Uh, mm-hmm. I suggested that you uh, spearheaded creating a left media ecosystem. 
I didn't mean to come off as like uh, omniscient or well-informed with respect to organizing. I was approaching um, uh, that from a, or that suggestion from a small um, small step-by-step strategy. Like for example, um, you, Sagar, Crystal, and Jimmy actually inspired me to uh, start a project, Juneteenth 2020. Um, it's an interview series focusing on working class politics. Hmm. So, you know, um, I purchased like several thousand dollars of equipment, downloaded and learned editing software, research, how to conduct basic interviews, whatever. Okay, um, look at you. Um, but I only worked on it a couple hours per week. So it took me like damn near nine months to publish the first episode. Um, all that to say, I didn't mean to belittle the lower difficulty in creating a left media ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was calling, when I called in last week, I was just suggesting the idea of doing things in small steps, especially since you have a, a cohort of um, leftist media. So that's point number one. Yeah, if I if I could just respond real quick, I know I stay getting a little testy about that stuff, but you guys, I I um. You know, I tweeted something today. Someone, someone like tweeted at me angrily because they didn't like something I said on Rising, which I didn't say anything. By the way, they were like, "You don't, you're aunt, you support mask mandates," and I was like, "When did I say that again?" Um, and I said something kind of flip in response, and they were like, "Well, I'm having a bad day, and I don't appreciate your sarcasm. You need to respect the fact that I am having a bad day." And I was like, "Bitch, I'm having a bad day." <laughs> You came into my mentions. I'm having a bad day. I'm stressed. I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning for this goddamn rising shit. <laughs> I had to record an episode. I'm sitting here doing this. I have to finish my radar after this. And I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning again tomorrow. And I haven't gone to the gym and I wanted to wash my hair and I'm upset as well. And sometimes it's just that I, you know, I'm like, I'm a human being also. <laughs> and yeah, the yeah. bandwidth is not a lot. And when I was on the set today, you know, they were asking me like how I felt about stuff. And I was like, What's the best thing about this is that there are like 20 of you here making this happen. You know, there's a whole team of producers. There's like th- a, two or three sound engineers and lighting guys, and they're all so lovely. The staff at the Hill, I got to say, just the loveliest staff. And they're all there before me and after me, right? And makeup artists, everyone, so lovely. And that is the quality, like that's the bare minimum, I think, of what we should be trying to achieve. That kind of online TV show. And, and Crystal and Sagar have the same thing in their setup as well, you know, down the street. And it's just that sometimes all of this seems very invisible. Sometimes I sit around and I get really hard on myself. I'm like, Brianna, you don't have a real job. Why are you tired? Like you were in your sweatpants and you didn't go in the office and you haven't left your apartment in three days. And then I remember like, I'm producing a show. I'm doing my own hair, makeup, and lighting. I'm making sure all my technical stuff is appropriate and buying new equipment all the time and repairing stuff that gets broken. I'm cutting my own clips and promoting them on social media. I'm doing all of these things, and that's fine. I'm not complaining. But that is for one podcast that comes out twice a week. Beyond going on other people's podcasts and doing the Hill Hit every Wednesday and stuff to try to, like, promote bad faith. And if we do this thing, and to your point, I'm agreeing with you, not um, arguing with you, doctor. Uh, It's just that it's going to take a lot. It takes a lot of money for the hill to go. And it took a lot of resources for um, Crystal and Sager to do breaking points to get that up off the ground. And that's not to say it's not going to happen. But it really is. It's not going to come out of everyone who's already in media just doing like – 5% 5% more on the side. It's going to take a lot of people having this be their dedicated job, you know? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, like that whole thing with uh, me publishing the episode, it made me appreciate what you guys do more. I know it takes a lot to uh, produce an episode. Um, so we appreciate, I think everyone in here appreciate you and um, everyone in the left ecosystem, I mean, uh, left media. All right, so like the second uh, point is a question um, not related to uh, the interview from today. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the context of an anti-establishment candidate running in 2024, so let's just assume Marianne Wilson is running for president. Um, four small points. If this is, you know, you let me know whether, what, what, you, what are your thoughts on it? If sure. Trump runs in 2024, I think Bernie endorses uh, the establishment candidate for reasons like uh, 2016 guilt or Trump's an existential threat to democracy, <laughs> which would lead to factions of the left feeling being uh, feeling betrayed by Bernie again. Two, the Justice Democrats will endorse the establishment candidate. Three, if Williamson runs as a Democrat, a segment of the left would outright ignore her run because of their ire towards the Democratic Party. I'm in that camp. I mean, I would, would want her to win, but I'm not going to campaign and donate like I did for Bernie Sanders and um, uh, the Justice Democrats. If she runs as and, a Democrat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, four, certainly if Williamson runs as a third-party candidate, some leftists such as Kulinski, Ball, and those, and those that were uh, against first vote won't endorse her. So those are... Well, uh, Kalinsky and Ball were for first vote, but I take your point that they are sometimes, you know, not as, at least I think Kyle's not as pro-third party as some other people, although I don't think he's anti-third party. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I know Chris, uh, um, uh, Kyle and Crystal were supporters. I was saying Crystal and Kyle, plus those that were against first vote, mm-hmm. would, would, um, would, would not endorse uh, a third party candidate. So what are your mm. thoughts on those four points? Because the way I'm seeing it, you know, I feel like 2024 is setting up to further divide the left. We can always just ask them, but I suspect I don't I don't have an instinct. My instinct isn't that Crystal and Kyle would support Marianne if she ran Democrat and not if she ran third party. I think it would depend. I think the only reason not to support Marianne, how, however she ran, and this is obviously all very hypothetical, but the, the only reason not to support her would be if there were a better left a better left candidate that maybe so that, or like at least an equal left candidate. So then there was really a choice between one of them running dim and one of them running uh, independent and making a choice on that metric or just on the raw talent or ability or platform of the given candidate. But like in my eyes, I can't see a world where it's like Biden or Buttigieg or Harris or whatever. And Marianne is running either as a dim or as a independent or forward or green or whatever. And Crystal and Kyra were like, oh, yes, let's go along with Pete. You know, I have a hard time yeah. believing they wouldn't just give Marianne the endorsement, even if they disagreed with her choice of how to run, you know? Uh, yeah, I see your point. It just, because of certain things they've said and how adamant, well, Kyle's more adamant than um, Crystal is, um, but they both allude to that. Um, their opposition of Republicans uh, even having a chance of um, uh, winning the the presidential seat, so there would most uh, they would most likely vote um, a Democrat in, in that circumstances. So, with a, if you have somebody running from a third party candidate perspective, 
obviously that would draw um, votes from the Democratic Party, thereby causing them to potentially lose. So that's why I, I put them in the category of. Um, oh no, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I have a hard time imagining Crystal or Kyle. And again, we should just ask them. <laughs> we yeah, don't have to yeah, speculate. Um, they would come on, and we can chat at any time. But I, 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 I don't. Um, I can't imagine them saying, uh, Marianne, don't run. You're going to be a spoiler. Like, I just, mm. if, if there's no leftist candidate, I can imagine, like, if Bernie were to run again and then Marianne got in the race and started meaningfully pulling progressive votes away from Bernie, saying, oh, you're going to spoil chances for Bernie or somebody who's, a, you know, maybe a more likely candidate. But who who's she going to spoil it for? for? Biden? Who cares? <laughs> who cares? Stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> I've been waiting for my moment. <laughs> I was late logging on today, guys, because I was recording that sound into the soundboard. <laughs> Stupid son of a bitch. That was well put. Okay, well, this, uh, I'll address the, la- the first two uh, ones, at least, um, before we go, or before I go. Um, what do you think Bernie and the Justice Democrats are going to do in terms of uh, an anti-establishment candidate? In 2020, 2024? Yes, ma'am. Um, I believe that uh, they're going to endorse the Democratic nominee. I think if somebody, you know, the, the corporate nominee, like I, I think that maybe if Marianne got out early enough and was strong enough that Bernie might have the decency just to keep his mouth closed for a while until if and until she burned out on her own. But if she were still like either like a really not polling very well at all and a complete non-entity or it were getting to the place for Biden, but not when that he would go ahead and endorse Biden or whomever it is. Okay. But that's just, this is all conjecture. And I don't mean to speak ill of anybody or like underestimate people. Maybe I'm wrong. And maybe Bernie will be like, fuck it. <laughs> we're just going to go for it this time. Got it. But okay. Um, thank you for asking my questions and entertaining this case scenario. No, of course. There's no stupid questions. Stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that wasn't directed at me. No, no. I just love that button so much. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me move on before I completely just cut it myself. Good luck Adios. to you. Thank you for calling. <laughs> All right, Andy. How have you been? Tell me what's on your mind. Uh, I've been busy, but I hope you're doing well. Much better since I programmed that button. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll be honest, there you, you have had a couple of guests on the podcast that I'm not a huge fan of, uh, Mr. Dixon included. Uh, what I do appreciate about you, though, is that even even those um, podcast guests that um, you have your disagreements with, you do you do uh, you do make sure to call them out on their positions and challenge them. Um, so it does. So I never get this impression where you're just giving somebody a platform and they're just you know spewing out their ideas unchallenged. So I do appreciate that about you. Um, this guy, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I I think it's just because of, um, my closest friend who I've had of ten years. Uh, I remember this one conversation I had with her mother where I just, I remember offhandedly men, uh, mentioning that I was a DACA recipient and I remember she looked me in the eye and uh, she she told me, you know, I love that you're my daughter's best friend and everything, but I'm going to be honest with you, 
I would have supported Trump for this, that, and the other. And I remember having to sit there and mm. listen to her, you know, nativist, uh, mm-hmm. anti-immigrant uh, uh, diatribe. And something, you know, he meant, uh, Mr. Dixon, in, in the inter- interview you had with him, he mentioned, you know, how all these other groups have, you know, there's a statistical uh, statistic evidence to show that they have all this anti-blackness and that kind of, you know, justifies his, and at least I, I took it to be kind of antagonistic, um, the nature in which he was talking about these other groups and, you know, this, you know, this anti-blackness that he was talking about that, that kind of justifies it. But, um, I mean, I hope I don't incense anybody or any, any of the, any of the listeners, but I do think it's also kind of a two-way street, you know? Um, I mean, for me personally, uh, before I moved, before I moved out to my hometown, uh, we were living in a majority black neighborhood at the time, which was, you know, uh, at, it had, you know, it was a, a poor area and, you know, high crime. And we ended up being, you know, ran out of town because I guess, I, you know, we were, we were one of the few, uh, uh, Latino residents in the, in the community. And, um, I guess just people didn't like us that much. And now that's, and, you know, that's not to say that I, how, how I'm, I'm trying to figure out the most delicate way to, to, um, to put this. Um, I don't know. It's just, I just, I feel like it's, a, it's a two way street. Um, and I just wish that, you know, that there wasn't so much, uh, like oppression Olympics. It, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, please unpack that for me. Yeah. So what I would say is that I wouldn't necessarily describe it as, I think there's a difference between oppression Olympics, which happens and a disparity, which, you know, a disparity, which I think is real with respect to how fundamental claims made by black Americans are politically ignored. I mean, Joe Biden said it explicitly in this tape, right? Like he explicitly said, blacks, you're not in the majority. You don't have political capital. You're out. Latinos are in. Now, that's not Latinos saying that. That's not Latinos fault, right? That's just Joe Biden being Joe Biden. Stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> but like that, I think I, I was trying to walk a line in that interview between not invalidating legitimate concerns of black Americans who felt like they've had to sublimate their political needs years for the greater good of the Democratic Party and them winning. So, you know, Bill Clinton gets to be called the first black president, launched his campaign at the execution of a mentally handicapped black man to prove that he was going to be tough on crime, signed the crime bill, had a sister soldier moment, threw Anita Hill under the bus. I mean, what else could the man do? And black people just eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, just like they've been eating it since Reconstruction, right? right. And every year we're told just like we were in 2016 and 2020, things that are true, right? Trump is gonna is doing all these horrible things to immigrants. All, all of that stuff is true. Look at the Muslim ban. Look at the wall. Like, look at these um, kids in cages. Every single thing was true. But it's also true that every new shitty, horrible thing a new, terrible, shitty Republican president does is used as a justification for why black people can't ask for anything. Just vote for Democrats. And not just black people, right? Everybody. But, like, vote, vote, dim, vote, dim, vote, dim. And Marcel, I, I have a tough time arguing with these people, even though I do think that their, their rhetoric slips into nativism. I have a tough time arguing with why it is that people like 
you know, Jim Clyburn and yes, Bernie Sanders do rightfully as they should have done signed various forms of packages for other disadvantaged groups as they should have done, whether it's Bernie um, supporting the reparations for descendants of Holocaust survivors or victims, whether it's the Native American tribe that he re- that Marcel referenced, um, sorry, Greg referenced, all of those things should have been done. And that was a clarifying point. I was really trying to help Greg to make his point without sounding like such a nativist. It's like, don't pit your stuff against those people. Say it's good that those people got what they got, but that also there's an inconsistency in your claims being ignored. You can do that without it being a zero-sum game. You can make your point without it being a same or zero-sum game. And I think the comparison can be politically useful because, I, you know, reparations is my number one issue. But I notice that everyone seems to get real quiet and, like, sensitive when it comes up in a way that it doesn't come up for other kinds of issues which are similarly niche and don't affect everybody. You know, student loan debt, you know, 44 million Americans. How many black people are there? About the same number? <laughs> you know, it depends on the census. And, um, you know, Marcel, uh, Greg has thoughts and feelings about the census numbers, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And, it's just, oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. But so I, I, I hear you. Like the, the, the main point I want to say to your to response to you is it's not about individuals, and this, I would say this to Greg as well, it's not about individuals having bias or like, oh, you know, a, a, a Puerto Rican was mean to me in high school. Oh, a black kid beat me up in the cafeteria. Like, who cares? Like, that's not the point. We're talking about systemic issues here, right? We're talking about a systemic failure to address past harms in the case of reparations or other kinds of systemic failures, whether it come, whether it's about immigration or dealing with um, DACA recipients or their parents and all of these other kinds of policies that have fallen along the wayside. And then we're yeah. all getting a little sidetracked here. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. I, I, um, I, you know, I feel like I could have, I could have, uh, phrased that a lot more delicate. Um, Don't worry about it being delicate. We're all friends here. We get it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, what I, I guess, I mean, cause I was on board with what he was saying up until the point where I, where it kind of sounded like he was trying to, you know, pit, you know, certain groups struggles against Correct. each other. And <laughs> it did sound like that. And I was trying so hard to help him. <laughs> like my, my follow up question, like just to be clear, you're you're not saying that those people shouldn't have gotten those things, right? You're just saying that black people should also get this, right? And he was like, Whoa. I was like, Oh, okay, well, Greg, I'm really yeah. trying to help you. <laughs> on a on a much lighter note, um, I don't know if you're taking any podcast recommendations. Sure. But um a uh, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, the podcast Sibling Rivalry. No, I mean podcasts you're going to listen to. I love those recommendations. Yeah, so um, so it's by these two, um, yeah, these two these two drag queens, Bob the Drag Queen and Monet Exchange. Um, oh, you don't really, Bob. yeah, they're they're great. Um, their their rapport is awesome, and I think um, if you're ever you know feeling down or anything, I think they're they're a good mood booster. I'm always looking for good, fun, light podcasts. I met Bob the Drag Queen once at a gay club with my little brother in L.A. the night my phone got stolen. Oh, really? Nobody cares. But <laughs> that's a true story. I'm definitely going to put this in my queue. I, the one podcast that I know I can listen to and doesn't make me feel some kind of way, um, you know, is never going to negatively affect my mood, is uh, Nicole Byer's podcast, uh, Why Won't He Date Me? Love her. Same. 
And I mean, sometimes it gets a little dark because I really want her to be a little bit more introspective and figure out what's going on in her romantic life. I think it's a vulnerability issue insofar <laughs> as she won't allow herself to be, which I get and have empathy for. And it has to do with some of her family hardships. And I would love to talk it through with her one day if she would just invite me on the pod. Um, but I'm always happy to get recommendations for other things that are kind of light and not about anything political. So thank you for that, Andy. Thank you, Bray. All right. Uh, up next is Melissa. How you doing, Melissa? What's on your mind? Hello. Oh, there you go. Hi, long time listener, first time caller. Well, welcome, Melissa. What are, what's, what are you um, thinking about these days? So, first of all, I wanted to say that I'm having a horrible day too. So, I get you on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just I just watched that clip before I got on here, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's so terrible. I don't know. I'm probably being uptight about it, but I was like, if I said that at my job, I would get fired. So, just saying. <laughs> um, so I listened to uh, some of the podcasts with Paula Jean, and it kind of reminded me of the whole situation with Nina Turner. And I'm uh, I live in what would have been Nina Turner's district, mm. and and I, I'm 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 still like really not over it because it got pretty rough there for a second. Um, I mean, you'd be me, surprised. What was your experience of how the campaign went as someone who was living there, watching the commercials and getting the mailers and stuff? Yeah, I mean, the commercials were really bad. And I, um, I volunteered for her a couple times. And mm. yeah, I mean, pretty much everybody who was hesitant about her, it was like, didn't she say that Joe Biden was a like bowl of shit or something? And I'm like, really, does that like matter right now? I mean, there are bigger issues that we need. To, I mean, this area is is not doing well, and it hasn't been doing well for a while. So you know, I think that I live in Akron, so Akron mm. actually voted for her. So, mm. you know, I I was just surprised after it happened how many people on the Internet would literally be like, if you supported Nina Turner is not a Democrat. And if you support her, you're not a Democrat either. It's like, right. And, you know, I have my my dad's a boomer and he has been voting Democrat his whole life and he voted for Nina Turner. Mm. It's like weird for you to say that someone who has voted Democrat their entire life and then decided, OK, I'm going to vote for, you know, someone who's a little bit more progressive, kind of feels differently about some things. You would just say, oh, yeah, they're not a Democrat anymore, I guess. It just it was very hostile. And mm. um, actually, what's going on right now is we have a uh, we have a progressive challenger to. Well, they're well in the primary. She's she's going after uh, Tim Ryan for mm. the Senate seat in Ohio, and she's a progressive. Um, What's her name? Her name Morgan Harper. Oh, I just uh, emailed her like literally an hour oh, right. ago. That's hilarious. Yeah, after I did the interview with um uh uh um Fidel Kaboob, the Economist, he they know each other. You know, he's from Ohio. Um, mm. And or he's teaches in Ohio and he was like, oh, I should connect you with Morgan Harper. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've been following her and I've been wanting to connect with her for a while. So I literally just followed up like an hour ago and hopefully she can come and talk to us on the pod. But sorry, I interrupted oh, yeah, you. Tell, so tell, me, tell me what the buzz is about Morgan in the state. So, OK, so she's been asking Tim Ryan to debate her for a mm. while and he's refusing to. I mean, I, 
it's so disrespectful because, you know, it's pretty much just him thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to win this primary. So why even, you know, provide my voice and allow her to have a platform and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. So she, he's been refusing to debate her. Well, so in response to that, she went out and she decided to set up a debate with Josh Mandel who is like one of the um, primary challengers on the Republican side. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he's like a lunatic. Mm -hmm. He's like super pro Trump and just like, yeah, he's crazy. So, so she decided to do that. Now, of course, the whole like democratic establishment is like saying she, oh, she's going to give a platform to fascism and stuff (sighs) like that. And it's kind of, I, I, and I can't understand the logic because, I mean, she wants a platform too. So right. obviously and now they're covering she... it. I just Googled it and it's all over. It's all over the place. Fox is covering it. Mm-hmm. Local Cleveland paper is covering it. Like you should have yeah, given and... her a platform Democratic Party if you wanted her not to do something like this. Exactly. And they're, and of course they're going to go after her. I just, this is just so typical of the democratic party to kind Mm. of take the progressives and use them as an excuse and just say, Oh, well, you're the reason all these fascist people are getting platforms. And it's, and it's exactly right. If, if Tim Ryan would have debated her, we wouldn't be in this situation anyway. So it's, um, and, and I mean, some people said, Oh, this is the biggest mistake she's going to make in her campaign. And of Personally, I'm thinking, you know, uh, I, people are going to tune in, though. So Yeah, that and, sounds... When is this debate happening? I want to see if I can... Should I have her on before or after the debate? I don't know when it's happening. I honestly didn't look at the... Um, it just got announced today. Though, yeah, I'm so. seeing all these stories. Like, this Fox article from 15 minutes ago. And the Cleveland.com yeah, yeah. was eight hours ago. Yeah, it just happened. So, And even, like, I'm seeing progressives from Ohio saying... You know, okay, well, I get that she's mad, but she shouldn't, you know, give a plat- platform to fascism. I'm the stupidest I just don't, I'm sorry. I just don't, un- I know, I just don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand it. It's the, it's the weirdest logic. First of all, he's going to be around no matter what she does, right? right. He's likely, he's probably going to win because he's like, I mean, he's out there and he's, I mean, he's been trying to be a senator for like a very long time. He's ran against uh, Sheriff Brown a couple of times, but, you know, he's probably going to win. So it's like, it doesn't matter if you give him a platform. He already has it, first of all. Right. And and second of all, Mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah. She has every right to want to go out and speak about what she believes in and debate someone. She has every right to do that. Yeah. I'm looking, uh, you know, Josh Mandel has a, three times your Twitter following, like, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm, this is, the, the platform argument has always been stupid. I, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's like, it's like to, um, um, Home Slice's point, uh, who I just finished, Andy's point, that, you know, I understand that people get a little nervous about platforming people and ideas that they don't like, but you just, all you got to do is confront them on them like it's not a platform Mm -hmm. if you're embarrassing somebody on it or if you're holding them accountable on it the platform is neutral it's what you do with it you know what i mean right Uh, yeah the idea that we went like and also it's a little frustrating didn't didn't morgan run for something else before and Uh, and lose she 
She, oh, yes, yeah, she ran against um, one of the representatives. Uh, what's her name? In Columbus. Uh, Joyce Betty in Ohio's yes. third. Yes, and, she and um, got 32% of the vote to Betty's 68%. Yeah, so I, remember, then, I remember that race. That was like, I remember uh-huh. that race and wondering why more people weren't paying attention to Morgan. Mm-hmm. No, she's a really, I, I think she's really great for a progressive up-and-comer. Um, she, you know, after she lost to the representative, she, um, someone who, who was it? I think it was Hakeem Jeffries. Mm-hmm. Said something like really disrespectful. He's such like, a piece of work. I <laughs> I don't understand it. Like he said something like, "Well, of course." Like I don't know what he said. I forgot, but something like, "Oh, of course she lost." Blah blah. Like just kind of like making fun of it. It's like, what? That's not necessary. Why do we have to be like that? Um, yeah, yeah, he. You know, he's like the next in line or whatever. Um, so all of those establishments that he he's the young establishment person being groomed to take over from Nancy Pelosi. So he has to help her hold the line. Mm-hmm. See if I can find yeah. This quote. Uh, yeah. Here it is. It was a tweet, I think. Uh, I think it's completely hypo- um, completely backward. I think it's hypocritical of Representative Jeffries and, quite frankly, Representative Davis, who both challenged incumbents before. Okay, but what's the statement? Oh, wait. Sorry. Never mind. Let me not try to do research in the middle of this live stream. Yeah, I wish I remember what he said, but I just remember reading it and and being like, I don't, I don't understand this. Like. Morgan is a young, you know, black woman. I don't know why you have to be, you know, I, I get it. She ran against like your buddy or something, but I mean, they just take it so personally. It's so strange. And that's kind of what's happening now is obviously they're just using this excuse again that, you know, they can't try to get their own platforms because they're, lifting up fascism and people who are fascist and it's like I just feel like it's I feel like they do that a lot but I I think I was disappointed by some of like the progressives actually going along with that because it's so clearly something they just say when progressives try to get a platform yeah and that I think that was so compelling about Paula Jean's interview um where you know she was very very clear about the fact that vote blue didn't matter who, because she's in the unique position of having yes, run as an incumbent against Joe Manchin, but then also run for the other seat and have mm-hmm. not and get no support from the Democratic Party, and then have exactly. Joe Manchin be friends with her conservative opponent, <laughs> and basically mm-hmm. stay out of it because he would prefer his conservative buddy over the actual party representative so like the the party allegiance her you know the point in the episode she said vote blue no matter who is a sham it's not even Mm -hmm. vote blue no matter who it's vote blue if you are in the club (laughs) if you're not in the club then the blueness doesn't even matter which is why some people are arguing that it doesn't behoove marianne or whomever to run the democratic party because they're just gonna get you anyway yeah and i mean i kind of agree with that because at the end of the day if they're going to turn around and say hey you person who's voted for a democrat your entire life you aren't a democrat because you voted for this person that we don't like and who isn't part of you know quote unquote the club i mean are you really going to mess around with those people i mean it just seems like a waste of time yeah yeah i'm with you um, thank you for flagging that for me. I'm going to make sure I don't let that Morgan email fall through the cracks again. And hopefully, you know, it'll be interesting to talk to her after the debate, but also maybe we should hit people to the debate 
people to her and that they should be paying attention when the debate happens and we can do a live stream or something after to discuss the results oh, of the yeah. debate like we did with the New York mayoral, mayoral primary, which was a lot of fun coming through that footage. Boy, oh boy. I tried to tell you guys about Adams because he came off as a sociopath in those debates. <laughs> okay. Um, those episodes are up. People should revisit them. They were fun. Thank you for calling in, Melissa. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Kyle, you are up. What's on your mind? Hello? Hello. Hi. Can you, can you hear me well? I can, Kyle. I can hear you loud and clear. All right. Nice. Uh, are we on YouTube? No, we are not. Mind. Not today. Although, I got to tell you, the makeup artist at What's the up? Hill really gave me an excellent beat. And I was almost okay. like, Brianna, set up your camera. Like, live stream this. Don't waste <laughs> this makeup. But then I was like, no, Brianna, you're running behind. And you can't be here all day because you got to get back to finishing your uh, radar. Before we're not ready for it. We're not ready for it. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. Record something, yeah. Record something. You got to save that moment. Yeah, <laughs> definitely post it. Maybe I'll use it tomorrow. What's on your mind, Kyle? Uh, a lot of things. I feel like I've been on cue since uh, I think Saturday or something. It was the first time where I uh, I really paid attention to your YouTube channel. Um, I found you. I guess you're talking on. I, I've known you about. I've known about you on Twitter for a while. Um, My apologies. But, Oh, no, no, I'm, you know, trust me, I'm crazy on Twitter. I don't want to tell you. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I found the uh, the show, decided to be a Patreon. Um, and oh, thank uh, you. yeah, it definitely because um, you're, you're very focused. You definitely have it like, um, like a good scope and like, you're a lawyer, right? I was at one point. <laughs> okay, that counts. Wait, once, well, yeah, you're a veteran. That's, that's veteran lawyer right there. Yeah, it counts forever. Because no, I, I don't think anybody else that I listen to is actually a lawyer. So I like sincerely, like, really appreciate that. I'm like, oh, like I actually need to think of it from a legal perspective. And Blake like Greenwald. Oh uh, yeah, but I mean, I don't like you know look for his stuff. I just see him Fair when he enough. pops up on the people I watch. Fair <laughs> yeah, and you know. uh Speaking of which, like the, so I saw you on Crystal and Sauger or Crystal and Kyle, perhaps. I think that's what it was. Yeah. But I mean, I watched them also watch like, uh, this might be triggering to people in the audience. Vosh, you might, I don't think that's a popular person. Uh, David <laughs> Pappen. popular for sure. I don't know about, he, about among this crowd, but he's popular. He's got a following. Well, see, I, I've noticed that most people in here are adults. So I feel like they can <laughs> Unless you're really a gamer like me, you're not going to appreciate the things you have to say and like the real sarcasm. The unintentional shade. <laughs> For real though, like it, it's it's a bunch of it's a bunch of kids, but watching his streams are fun because like he has the 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 chat, his own chat, like it's a Twitch chat, but it's on his own website. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't made my own because you can't use a VPN on it, which makes sense for security purposes. But like his chat is so funny because he'll say something and they react to it in like a specific way with like a uh, Wojak meme or Pepe meme. And, and like, that's just internet humor to me. I That gets me every time, most mm-hmm. of the time, most of the time. Sometimes, I mean, everyone crazy in there, but like, yeah, here when I want like a real educated perspective, I got to come here and like, Honestly, when I hear you talk, I really got to like pay attention and like, okay, it's not just like messing around, just background music. Like, okay, I got to really like listen, like what's going on, and like it really break it down because I mean, you got a really important perspective. So, yeah, it's great to to have you know you're doing great work. Um, But yeah, um, that's about it. I mean, I'll probably pop in every now and then. Um, I guess the the one, two things that were on topic. I I don't want to hold it up or nothing like that. you know, 
No, that's not important. I just want to introduce myself to you, tell you, know, tell you, you did a great job you're doing. I hope you have a great day. I'll, I'll, Thank I'll you, call Kyle. You that was, yeah. that was a, that's a lovely introduction, and I look forward to seeing you again in the chat sometime for the live <laughs> cool. stream. <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah. So I'll be on YouTube. My, I'm Dogman, by the way. That's, dog, that's me. Dogman? Dogman, dog yeah. Like that little boozy clip where he's like, come on now, dog. Come on, man. <laughs> that's where I got it from. <laughs> okay, yeah. I won't be forgetting that, Kyle. Uh, yeah, Thank you for calling in. Keep the faith. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tom, you're up next. What's on your mind? It was up. Uh, I had something I thought was going to be like some real kind of sharp point I was going to make, but I figured I'll just keep it light. Uh, with your soundboard, you know what quote you should get? You've got to get a button for all of Biden's gaffes, at least the listen fat one. You know, I don't, I don't Ooh, listen fat would be a good one. Yeah. I was like, look fat, listen fat. Um, yeah, okay, and, but if and... I deploy that, like, I don't want to be out here feeling like I'm fat shaming my listeners. I mean, this one, this one, I don't know. This time it feels less personal. All right. Look, <laughs> maybe I, I'm deluding I, as, myself <laughs> as a person of excess weight myself. Thanks to COVID. You, I give you full authority <laughs> that if you ever want me to shut up, you can just hit the listen fat shut up in the middle of it. And I you got to get Trump gaffes. You, you got to get Trump gaffes. All right. Just, just the Trump guy is, the guy is a mean quote machine. <laughs> I look, I think Trump is awful. My father worked for him. I've heard nothing but bad things about the man since mm. I was a kid. The one thing I miss about the Trump years was just how consistently hilarious the news cycle was all the time. It's true. May I ask, like, what, how, how, you know, what your father did for him? <laughs> so my father was a um, was a superintendent for technically the housing units they had were owned by the brother, mm. um, but uh, you know Donnie, as they used to call him, had a uh, you know had some ownership in that. And I don't know if I told this little anecdote, but you remember how like Trump did that thing at the White House, and he had the uh, what was it McDonald's? Mm-hmm. I could have swore I seen like Stop and Shop fried chicken there too, but whatever. Um, <laughs> when when I was really young, my father uh, my father had his chauffeur pick up my dad and the other supers, and he was like, "Look, uh, they're gonna take you guys out to eat." And my dad thought they were going to like Peter Luger's or something fancy in the city because you know this is like billionaire dawn right now mm-hmm. I, I swear to fucking god the chauffeur took all the supers to white castle <laughs> no not white castle i swear to god this is like jamaica queens like white castle <gasps> not white how is that somehow like worse than mcdonald's not I, white castle i don't know because white at least like mcdonald's does some upkeep i've never been to a white castle that wasn't like dilapidated <laughs> and like it looked like you couldn't even like <laughs> walk on the floor barefoot without catching something. I just, yo, I don't know. I've never, I gotta confess, and this is like gonna diminish my like Northeast Quarter cred, but I've never physically been to a White Castle. The only White Castle I've ever consumed is there's a service here in DC called GoPuff, which I only put together after the fact is basically designed for stoners, which LOL, you know, I'm the oldest living American who's never smoked pot, but GoPuff will basically deliver you whatever you would get from like a CVS. It's not like a full grocery store or anything, but it's like pop tarts or Q-tips, like shampoo. You can get a mask, uh, you know, ice cream, potato chips, candy bars, you know, CVS things. 
and they would bring it to you in like 15 minutes. It's, it's very quick. They have some warehouse somewhere. I'm not sure how it works, but it's way quicker than any other delivery. And I think it's designed for people who smoke and get the munchies and like want to get something late at night. It's also very, very late. And I remember literally the last meal I had before the campaign ended, the night before Bernie called it, we did a live stream with Bernie and a bunch of people talking about some race issue, I forget. And they got me on the horn with Dr. Dooley and some others. And the last meal I had, I have a picture of me sitting doing this live stream in the mess of my studio apartment with a plate with two sad White Castle burgers microwave that I had ordered from GoPuff in front of me. But also because apparently Trump's brother was using it to undermine and demean his employees, your dad. (laughs) Oh, no, that that was legit Donnie. That was the Donald himself who was doing it. Apparently, the brother was halfway decent. Like, I mean, they're all just scumbags and, you know, everybody. I got, oh, I got another little anecdote and then I'll shut up. Okay. So I don't know if you remember the Trump housing buildings, uh, Years ago, they came under some kind of DOJ lawsuit for um, discrimination. Mm-hmm. My father was actually one of the superintendents that got busted in that scandal. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay, okay. Wait, wait, wait. So, like, I mean, do you want to clarify, <laughs> you want to clarify the role your dad was playing? Was your dad the hand of this, these discriminatory housing practices? Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. On one, one, all right, all right. I'll caveat it a bunch. <laughs> like, you know. I mean, my dad is like really throwing your dad under the bus in a way that is not necessary right now. I know. I've already told you guys he's an ex felon too. I'm so glad my dad doesn't listen to this. That's fine. I come from a long line of felons. It's really okay. (laughs) Both my grandfathers. It's truly fine. But it's the it's the discrimination part that I'm a little hung up on here, Tom. Okay. All right. So (laughs) basically, uh, the way it would go is. You know, back in the day, I guess, people, when you wanted to apply for an apartment, it's, I mean, this is the way it is around all around the country, but as I'm sure you've been here in New York for a while, especially a bunch of New Yorkers, it's like a real good old boys network. Mm -hmm. Like, I told you, I work in construction. It's all back padding and ass kissing and nepotism, and that's kind of the way it is. So, like, people would apply, and they would hit all the marks on paper. Mm -hmm. And the last thing they had to do was interview one of the supers or management and I'm not like, I'm not going to say the words, but basically it came direct from the top. Certain groups of people were not particularly wanted in the building. Mm. Like if you got two candidates of equal income and all this other stuff, um, basically the white Jewish, maybe Asian candidates were preferred. Mm-hmm. But blacks and Latinos were like a no-go in those mm-hmm. buildings. And so mm-hmm. the DOJ sent these two undercover agents. And uh, I don't know if it was the DOJ or the um, the the New York DA or something like that. But uh, apparently, according to my dad, they brought all their paperwork. They had all the stuff. But it was uh, two black people who went there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my pop sees the thing. He goes up to management. And man- <laughs> management's like you know they're like no you know we don't want these people here and then they sent a second couple Mm -hmm. like a week later with Mm -hmm. almost the identical credentials Mm -hmm. and management's like okay yeah they can take it and boom there it was right there 
And uh, Donnie threw my dad and all the supers under the bus. Like, you know, it's not me. It's mm. not management. They're just racist assholes. I mean, a lot of them were. But uh, in my father's defense, you know, he was married to my mother, who's fairly dark skinned. So I, that's like the ultimate. I have a non-white friend <laughs> defense. <laughs> so, Tom! Uh, yeah. Yo, these mixed race couples are out here always making these arguments. Don't do this to us right now. <laughs> Listen. No, look, it's okay. Look, we know what's funny about this. So when I was in law school, we still did this. We had a, um, like a housing, I was in the, I was, uh, I was in the social justice committee, basically, that, that was within the Black Student Association. And one of the programs that we ran was to send people in couples to apply for housing and we had white students from another org, I think the American Constitution Society, that would that would go as well. And we would set people up like this. Like we were like the control group. We worked with the civil rights group that needed young people to go and like play these roles. And so we would do that. And when I interviewed Bernie for the campaign podcast in the first episode of Hear the Burn, he says to me, oh, when, when I was back in the 60s uh, in, in college we used to do this thing to protest housing segregation on campus i don't know if you ever heard of this i was like yeah bernie we're still doing that <laughs> we're still doing that because it's definitely still a thing and my mother will tell you stories if i ever get her on the pod about what it was like for her trying to rent an apartment in new york in 2001 when we moved back to, to the states so it's a thing uh trump is bad i'm just gonna say that your 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 dad got caught up in it and was just following orders he was just following orders. <laughs> Very good stuff. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you live and you learn. And I appreciate you sharing and being vulnerable with us, Tom, in a way that I hope Nicole Byer is someday as well. Thanks. Appreciate it. We call that a callback. All right. Thank you for calling, Tom. Right, bye. Next up, Sylvester. How you doing, Sly? Is this a safe space? This is the safest of spaces. Stupid song. My lap. <laughs> Last time I was on, he was gaslighting people, hanging up on us. <laughs> Something crazy. I've never hung up on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you had no. You was on. I think that was, you was on here for like three hours or something like that. And I think the sound just went off. I think the universe is trying to tell you, like, go ahead and heat up that white castle. You need to get, get off the line. <laughs> you guys know my hypo. I do get a little hypoglycemic. My glucose levels get low, and I can't be responsible for my behavior at that point. I do apologize though i you know i'm not all <laughs> goodness and light lol no, oh good and I, I don't know how you you expanded the brand i want to say i see a lot more women in the queue and i like how right? we're breaking it up a little bit me too you i know? like the energy that's being brought it feels like co-ed goodness yeah i you know still you're still on balance so we gotta you know start reaching out to, i think you said that you're gonna start reaching out to some of the makeup uh youtube artists <laughs> Someone on, the, someone on Twitter tweeted that his girlfriend was in line talking to me, like was in the queue talking to me. So I don't know if he put her on. I don't know which of the women who've talked so far is Spencer Furness's partner. But he was very excited that his girlfriend was in the queue. And Spencer, if you're listening and you're the one who put whomever on, I appreciate you dragging your girlfriend into this or gently encouraging her to do this because all of the women have been a wonderful contribution to this evening. But Sylvester, what's your contribution to this evening? My contribution. Uh, oh, shout out to Day too. I'm gonna shout out Day because I see Day in the queue. I always love when Day Day's comes Day's in the on. queue. Uh, Where's Day? Day? Oh, he's way back there. Okay, we got to make sure that we move up. Yeah, the we, we got to get to Day. 
before you get hypoglycemic. We got to make sure that they get the wrong. But the interview was interesting. Uh, homie, uh, uh, Greg, mm-hmm. a Geechee brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. I see you was trying to help him out a little bit. I was trying. A lot. Even, even with the... Um, were you trying to help him out with the... Like, y'all, are you reaching out just as Democrats? Like, how are you going to expand? A little bit. Because, like, look, like, I hate when people interview progressives and they're like, you don't have a chance. So I don't want to do that, right? But also, like, yeah. to me, this could be a huge opportunity for – fundraising opportunity for him to come on the show, right? Like, what other platform – I don't right. mean that in a self-aggrandizing way. I'm not saying that I'm, like, Jake Tapper. Nah, talk your stuff. <laughs> talk your stuff, please. Go ahead. <laughs> Wear that crown. <laughs> Realistically, like, what other progressive show is going to have him on? You know, I probably, I arguably, some people in the queue might think that I shouldn't have had him on to begin with. I was actually surprised that you did. I wasn't expecting I mean, like, that. look, this is how I felt about it. Sometimes I'm like, if I'm going to take a chance on someone like Marcel, I'll put him with someone else who's a more um, uh, guaranteed interview, like a more typical interview. Like, you know, so I figured I wouldn't have given it him to you yeah. alone, but I think of it as like a, it's an extra. It's like, here, here's Paula Jean Sparingen. She's been through. <laughs> Let me pair it with something that you might like. Yeah. And then, you know, and then we'll take unknown. a chance. Like, I'm not going to schedule an interview with a complete unknown. And I don't know if he's credible and I don't know anything about him, but people have been in my mention saying you got to interview this guy. We had had an altercation on Twitter where he kind of came for me. Like, oh, I know you didn't, you don't yeah. care about reparations. And I was like, sir. Sir, this is not how we're going to do this. I'm not going to hold this against you, but this is absolutely not how we're going to do this. And so then we set the menu up. And look, at the end of the day, I really appreciated knowing more about Jim Clyburn's district. Regardless of how you feel about him and his race, I think there's meaningful insight into knowing where Jim Clyburn is coming from and how poorly he is serving his constituents. Right. And I'm just I'm glad someone challenging him. You know, like, again, he did, you know, he did lose me. I know I could tell the catalog too when he started going on the abortion thing. And I was just like, okay, so I see the math. We're, we're trying to math the math right now. And you want to improve economic decisions. So maybe there's less incentive to get, you know, but then just, mm-hmm. I'll write this banning abortion. He said like, ban abortions. He said bullet point. <laughs> Ban abortion. It's just like, yeah, no, if I fix all this, you're not even going to want to have an abortion. So I'm going to go ahead and ban it. Like, I think it's a little more nuanced than that, you know. But but I respect the thing because, you know, he's a little different or whatever. But I, I respect that he stand on whatever he believe in. Yep. And he go, goes hard in the paint when it comes to that. So... Yeah, so I, I respect that. It was yeah. it was it was a, it was an interesting it was an interesting conversation. Um, the Paula Jean one, not gonna lie, it's a little hard to not hear her come off as a little bitter. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, some of the shots is a little petty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you see that as well too. Like, it, it seems like she kind of is airing out her own grievances with the way that certain things went. Well, and, and again, I, I'm sure, she, you know, she's fighting for all the things she's fighting for. I'm not taking away from that. But, I, you know, I think that it kind of mixes in a little bit. Uh, the, the pettiness type of energy. I feel petty energy. Petty next door energy, I feel it. I mean, like, I think that a person can be petty, but not unjustifiably so. I mean, I, think that can, I know that uh-huh. like coming off as petty or bitter could undermine your credibility, and that's definitely a thing. But it also sometimes I feel like, you know, 
you know, people will be like, you know, she's just jealous. I mean, like, sometimes I'm jealous of stuff, <laughs> you know? You're like, I'm jealous, but doesn't mean my criticism of you was wrong. You know, you maybe want to take it with a grain of salt. You know, maybe I was wronged. You know, people are always telling women, oh, you're so bitter. Like, I don't mean that you're doing that because she's a woman, but I'm just saying like in romantic context and stuff. Oh, you're so bitter. Okay, well, I just got, I just got, you know, dumped or whatever. Like, I just got treated poorly. Like, what am I supposed to do? Be immune to the world emotionally and not learn from things, not internalize any of the things I've experienced in my life? Like, we have a flinch response after we're hit because we've evolved to avoid the danger the next time comes around. And bitterness is just the emotional equivalent of flinching. I mean, if she would rather be the one that Nancy Pelosi is making cry on the on the on the floor, then <laughs> you have little faith. You don't think Paula Jean would have held the line, Sylvester? <laughs> Listen, man, I think I think her and my had them tissues. <laughs> I had them charmins. You know, grabbing up. <laughs> Uh, nah, you know, so yeah, so you know, solid interviews, but yeah, nothing, nothing too heavy today, man. I just, you know, again, just checking in. Um, again, I want the women to get on here. I want to your day get. I want to see everybody get on in before you go ahead and and shut down. So, all love, and I'll be here on the next time. Thank you, Sylvester. It's always good to hear from you. All right, Clifford, you're up next. Unmute yourself and tell me what's on your mind. Hey, Bree. Um, how are you? I'm doing well. What's up with you? I'm I'm also doing well. I uh, I saw you on Rising today, and and I uh, when I see it on YouTube now, I don't normally tune in, but I was like, oh, if you're hosting, I'm I'm gonna watch it, and I really liked your radar. I thought that was such a good way to talk about just like the ineffectual nature of like both parties and fake populism and and how the culture war is used. I thought that was just a really good example. A great like you packed a lot in there, is what I'm saying. Um, Thank you. I I always write stuff down and then get really scatterbrained anyways, but I'm going to try to just um, read something in regards to uh, the uh, this place that I feel like we're in as far as uh, ineffectual political, you know, parties and uh, and basically just this stalemate that we're at. So I I've written a bunch of stuff. But I'm only going to read this short paragraph, so I apologize. But uh I was wondering if we could start a dialogue about the most effective strategy to combat the only real villains in regards to climate, healthcare, the opioid epidemic, housing inequality, and namely that's just the 1%. And I would love to know your thoughts on this, like my life experience so far, and I've heard it echoed in your radar, in, in your interviews today when people were talking about like their anecdotes with voters and, and so on that as every administration has changed in my lifetime, the trend worldwide has been worsening of climate, worsening of inequality, regardless of any electoral results. The squad offers some hope, like Obama in his time offered hope, Trump offered hope to some people. And like every attempt has been, you know, with the same result, basically this worsening trend. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like unless something, and I know we've talked about this before, but unless something disrupts the profits of the elite, there doesn't seem to be a change. The only thing that really lights a fire in the media or um, the political spectrum is when something affects the elites. Even with um, even with massive electoral wins, 
I wonder if because of how entrenched power is in unelected bodies like that uphold the status quo, such as the CIA, the FBI, Supreme Court, any amount of government agencies we've seen turnover in the FDA and like the Department of the Interior. I was really hopeful with uh, Biden's pick. And yet we've seen the continuing of pipelines. Mm. Line three wasn't canceled. And I so just Holland's not holding it down. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I don't I can't really explain it from my own like kind of naive place in the world. But because um, I feel like just getting most of my political cues from the media that I consume of yours, to be honest, like just because I get so tired listening to so many other voices that just repeatedly go back to the refrain of electoralism. Mm -hmm. Like I was so heartened when you um, when you uh, when our revolution was changing to this incrementalist model. Mm -hmm. And I'm and I like full disclosure, like I lost a a cousin, a close cousin to a heroin overdose. I lost my Mm -hmm. dad because of lack of health care. And he was homeless Mm -hmm. beforehand. And he came to live with me. And he we took him to the hospital for three months. And he didn't receive treatment in all those times. It was like five referrals. And then he and he died. And he was like 60 something. He was 69. And uh, oh, no, that's okay. And uh, but it's just uh, I've just been really heartened by how you deal with things. And you seem to share this exhaustion with incrementalism and with, um, you know, just like all the brick walls we hit. And I feel like you have this simultaneously, you have this patience when you're, you know, interrogating the methods of opposition. You're like a methodical nature that I think is really heartening. And I think that that could lend credence to things that I feel like in the public eye currently are not given any validation. But the older I get, the more I feel like they're the last real options before some sort of dystopic turn, you know. And so that and that's basically the end but i was just thinking that what do you think about like um you know some of the i just feel like your podcast is the only place i could even make an ask like this without being like laughed you know out of the thing Mm. but like but investigating the efficacy of like um you know like the indian farmers occupying movement or like capturing media cycles with like public disruption and like targeting one percent's profits rather than government occupation you know some people's Mm. strategies are like we need a mass movement to occupy washington but then other people are saying well we'd need far less people to you know disrupt the profits of like a certain entity and targeting Mm. one entity might then spread you know like uh this kind of divestment from the other fossil fuel giants you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so stuff like that i think i just feel like in other circles it would be this kind of laughable thing. And and then people would just go back to talking about third party. But I feel like if you gave it the credence that you bring to things, I feel like maybe the reception would be different and maybe the, the, yeah. Yeah, no, I think those are all really fruitful lines of inquiry for conversation and episodes and interviews and things like that. I mean, and if like truly, I'm not just like BSing you, if you have, you know, specific people who've organized similar efforts or written books about historical um, efforts of those kinds that have been successful or made some progress in some in some respect. I would love to talk to people about that because it seems so obvious, right? Like, here, here's the thing that bothers me about the, like, just organized conversation. It's not that you're wrong, but if you were that invested in organizing, and I don't mean to make claims about people acting in bad faith or anything, but, like, to me, if you really expected the people you listen to 
to do something, which I think a lot of people who are listening are primed and ready to do what they can, even if their means and time are limited, then you would be like super specific and have a plot in mind and not just like unionize your workforce, you know, but like, are you, do you live in Montana? There's, are we going to go and, you know, protest this pipeline? Are we going to go do an activism for, you know, Julian Assange? I saw Marianne Williamson out there this morning or yesterday morning in a tweet in the cold, you know, advocating for Assange. I see, like, I see people doing things. Are we, are we going to, like, we can't even get a conversation going about whether or not we're all going to have a collective strike around student debt, which is a, 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 a financial flux that kind of organizes itself. We're already all in non-payment. And I hear Ashton Taylor's point about that not having the financial squeeze on an institution the way that other kinds of debts that are being paid are but yeah and i wouldn't even (laughs) understand i wouldn't have understand uh understood sorry that dynamic if you hadn't pressed her for the specifics of Mm -hmm. like why are you kind of backing off off my line of questioning when i press you on this because i want to know the specifics and because you did that i was like oh okay so this is different with a with a debt strike Mm -hmm. so but i think you're 100 percent right like the one whenever I see or talk to people like I feel like more and more we hear this long convoluted thing where people kind of like unfortunately I love David Schroeder but I feel like he's one of the I think he does this all the time just on Twitter or something but like when I see them shared but like rhetorical questions of like why is the media doing this why are the Democrats doing this and it's like everything I could like say myself all this scrolling just by saying the 1% is the villain behind every scenario. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It literally is every single scenario. And so it's just like, it cuts through the meat of that. And at the same time, that's the thing that unites people on both sides is like hatreds of elites. It's Mm -hmm. also, you're 100% right. Everyone's just kind of looking around being like, I don't want to wait till 2024 Mm -hmm. to, and I will vote for a third party, but I'm just saying like, I I don't want to wait that long. And no one else does either. We all want to do something within our means. Like you were saying, like, uh, if people came on and they were just like, look, here's the bail fund you all need to give to. These right. are activists who are, they're going off and they're going to get arrested. They know they're going to get arrested. We're trying to capture media uh, attention to stop line three. They're going to get arrested. We need bail money. Here's the link, you know, just and right. everyone fucking shares it like crazy. And more and more people then feel like I would feel less of a risk if there was a bail fund that's like, we've already raised this many millions of dollars. I'd be like, OK, I'm going to go get arrested and then get right. bailed out. You know what I mean? Because because I know the infrastructure is there and people would give. I think people would give to that as readily as a electoral candidate if it got the same seriousness from the outlets that we have, which are outside the one percent's influence, hopefully anyways, you know, 100 percent. And I got to say, got to give it to the pot safe boys because they do that and they raise massive amounts of money for causes that I would not choose. It's a lot of I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say I wouldn't choose them, but, you know, they do a lot of like Democratic Party voter registration, give to candidate type stuff. But they, you know, they raised a meaningful amount of money that registered voters in Georgia that had a meaningful effect on the outcome. And they can be, you know, whatever you think about the merits of Democrats winning the House, the Senate, like that, they, they affected outcomes. And I think the left could too. I mean, for all the complaints about him, Hassan Piker has raised an enormous amount of money when he does these drives for various causes. I mean, there's a lot of people who have a lot of capacity to do stuff. But it's this organization point, the same kind of lack of organization that prevents us from having a united kind of media front, keeps us balkanized in terms of like the mutual aid efforts that are happening here and there, very pointedly by, you know, groups like 
Nick and um, Fred Hampton left us and all of them, like they've taught me a lot about what is possible with mutual aid, but I do wish it was a little bit more, um, I don't know. Con- People I think want to give in a way that feels like it's going to add up to something more. And even though it's obviously very important if someone says, oh, my God, I need $50 to make rent, and you give them $50 and they don't get evicted, that is enormously important. But in terms of collectively, I feel like folks are much more likely to be willing to give more if they feel like it's going to have a longer-term systemic effect than, you know, a one-off. So I'm with you. Um, I agree. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate that. You always say, like, uh, like that you are willing to be pushed by your audience or whatever. So I just, like, when I saw a few, so I appreciate how I was expecting maybe we'd have like a back and forth, but instead I'm really heartened to hear uh, that we're on because I just, you know, I see all the electoral leanings because you're rightly like talking about trying to get the jump on 2024 and all the, and, and the Marianne, Marianne stuff. And so I, I get that. And then, so I'm just feeling like, Oh no, we need as much energy as we can this way. But what I was going to extend if possible is, I have uh, sent you some things over like probably like the Patreon message or something like that before. Oof. But if you, so yeah, I'm sure yeah, that's probably not the right, the right Avenue, <laughs> but if you, if you seriously, like I have a huge list of people who I think would be great and I'm willing to do whatever like research or whatever you'd like preliminaries. Uh, so if you give me any uh, resource to send you, something i would love to send you stuff and i will is your name clifford in the patreon box yeah it is okay i'll scan for your name okay i appreciate that some of you guys here's why i don't look at the patreon anymore first of all love you guys but some of you it's not like i can just answer emails and say yes no here's the link because you guys are so lovely and thoughtful you'll be writing me like 200 words and telling me all of this intimate sad vulnerable stuff about yourself that requires me to sit down and write a 45 minute email back to you. And then I get so overwhelmed once I read your sensitive email about how I owe you this response that I get overwhelmed. There's not enough hours in the day. And so I just stopped looking at it. (laughs) Like I confess, like it's just, it's just not possible for me to write all of you guys back at the length. You're like, Oh, you know, advise me about whether I'm not going to, I should go to law school. I cannot spend 20 minutes (laughs) writing the same email over and over about how you guys know I don't think you should go to law school. I don't know what to tell you. Are you rich? Go to law school. It's a great education. Are you not? Mm, consider doing something else because student loan debt is no joke. But anyway, that's a tangent. Um, I'm going to briefly put on a clip of what do you want to listen to? Do you want to listen to the abortion clip that is paywalled that I will play it for you guys? Or do you want me to put on a little bit of rising and be talking about being a sexy green M&M? Thumbs up for abortion. Thumbs uh, heart for M&M's. Abortion. M&M's. Okay. okay that was kind of splitsy. There's a lot for M&M's. Okay. All right. I'll be right back. I just got to turn my heat off before I broil to death. Has always built a I'm going to skip future. ahead a little. The beginning is just me talking about how progressives all believe in the same priorities, you know, $15 minimum wage, blah, 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 for a round of golf or insider trading. Real populists like Bernie Sanders policy advisor Warren Gunnels focus on the real story. 
that the Mars Candy family, which has $153.8 billion in wealth, has become $50 billion richer during the pandemic and has used its wealth to lobby Congress to repeal the estate tax. More goodies for the 1%. Admittedly, the story is less sexy than Green's go-go boots, but it is, in fact, the one that matters. Now, I don't mean to be a killjoy. It is fun to make fun of pop culture absurdity. M&Ms are good content. I get it. And frankly, as a leggy, round-faced woman who was also named after a color, I identify with what Ms. Green is going through. Hashtag representation matters. This is just a cautionary note to remember who is served by these stories. Your partner in politics may disagree with you on the amount of arch support and anthropomorphic girl candy deserves, but never forget that you probably agree on what really matters. All right, we are back with Grace. Grace. I've got a glass of water. My heat is off. I'm toasty, but comfortable. Tell me what is on your mind. <laughs> um, well, I kind of wanted to take it back to Anna's uh, call at the beginning um, about the abortion part of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I obviously think abortion should be legal, but um, but I do think he was hitting on a really important point about um 80 percent, you know, I think he's I don't, I'm not sure the validity of that statistic, but that 80 percent um, of abortions for black women are happening because of economic insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I'm kind of interested in how we can take back the narrative around abortion on the left and kind of maybe frame it as a family values issue in the in the sense that, you know, we're not taking care of um, of people. And that's why you know, I mean, that's a big driver of abortion mm. um, while still, you know, maintaining its legality. And I definitely, I felt like Andrew Yang kind of did that, mm. um, talked about, you know, about the family. I mean, um, we know that the birth rate is plummeting right now and it's going to continue. It's going to be exponentially plummeting. Um and I think a lot of that is driven by economic circumstance. I was looking on the Debt Collective's Instagram this week, and they said, "I what would you do, basically, if your student loan debt was canceled? And a lot of people were commenting, um, start a family. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so I just, I just feel like on the left, we're kind of ignoring, I don't know. I know some people are single issue voters around abortion, and I think we're missing bringing people onto our side um, by, yeah, by not expanding that conversation um, and talking about what that would look like. Yeah, it's kind of, um, I mean, like, it's an it's an interesting question how much abortion is a single issue like would be the determinative issue at this point for Republicans who are like lib curious or whatever, you know, sometimes I I'm, I'm torn between thinking abortion is a litmus test deal breaker for Democrats and also completely almost beside the point for Republicans at this point, given that they so readily supported, you know, Donald Trump who's nobody's Christian values candidate. And I don't think anybody credibly believes he hasn't paid for an abortion or two in his life. I actually have, I, I have a family member who, who reg- regrets voting for Trump um, the first time because of abortion specifically. Oh, what, what did and, they say? 
And they were actually curious about Bernie um, prior to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately they were like, this is a really important, they're very evangelical Christian. Um, but, you know, as we have conversations and I kind of dig deeper into, you know, what their values are, um, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, obviously I think we should be taking care of um you know, of the children in our, in our country and so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, so I think that that's just something that some people are really, really dug in on. And I do think that, um, it maybe makes a difference. And I actually think there's like a left movement happening, um, among some of the evangelicals, yeah. um, which I wouldn't know if it weren't for my family members. Um, tell me more yeah. about that. What, what does that look like? Um, well, I mean, they're actually having like sermons about, you know, social justice and stuff like that. My brother Mm -hmm. goes to, um, some mega church in Dallas, but, um, but they, but they really, you know, like they'll, they'll talk about, um, you know, racial equity issues or, um, healthcare, stuff like that. And he's moved just, you know, significantly to the left. Um, and I Mm -hmm. think would be. Yeah. I mean, from, from, from how they were raised, you know, um, <laughs> mm. and yeah. So I, I'm curious about two things. One, well, three. Okay. I should write this down. <laughs> first, first, what, what was the conversation like around why they voted for Trump the first time, despite his, whatever he is on abortion. And then what, like what made them change their mind about him? And then two, what, how did they interpret Bernie's approach to abortion and was it acceptable to them? Um, I think, you know, once it came down to the general election, they, I mean, like many of us, they didn't like either choice. <laughs> um, mm. And they just like Supreme Court appointment was the, mm. yeah, was the driving factor because of abortion. And, um, but I mean, I think since then, and then obviously watching watching Trump in action, you know, there was just no way they could do it again. (laughs) And and Um, Bernie, Bernie, they didn't have Supreme Court issues with Bernie? Well, I think it was more the other social policies that they are more interested in with Bernie. Mm. So Um, in either case, they were willing to ignore abortion in Trump's case or Bernie's case, or like not prioritize it as high as some other things, which is interesting, which kind of goes to my initial question of like, how much is that the but for factor for the right in the same way that it seems to continue to be a real litmus test for liberals at least? Yeah. I mean, I think, I I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's still definitely going strong on the other side in my, in my view, but I just think that there's a way that we can take, um, yeah, that we can take it and frame it as a class issue. Um, because, and I mean, I actually see that among like liberals as well. Um, I attended, you know, after the Texas um, ban, I attended a rally downtown in my town and it was, it was organized by the DSA, but um, you know, the pussy hat ladies didn't really (laughs) um, necessarily know, um, you know, what they were getting into and they were shouting, we will not be forced to exploit or to birth your exploited workforce, you know? And I feel (laughs) like, I feel like, yeah. And I feel like it gave, like it gave a real education. Um, I mean, I'm not saying just necessarily pulling people from the right. Um, but I think like taking that issue, people who care, um, about abortion, who are, you know, who are those type of folks, um, and then framing it back to, 
to the issues that um, are more to the left, mm-hmm. you know, that we don't have this, this support infrastructure. Because at the end of the day, you know, those people, those women may have not been able to access abortion when they were growing up, but because of the privilege they have now, basically, no matter what happens, I mean, you know, I mean, if you if you have means, you're going to be able to continue to access abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you can book a flight to Canada. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, but I, I definitely, you know, I agree with Anna's point about, you know, I mean, I feel like sometimes the way we talk about it ignores. I mean, I certainly don't know anybody who <laughs> has had an abortion that um, was excited about that. You know right. what I mean? Um, so. Right. Um, but that is know, huge. I think that just recently people have felt more comfortable kind of saying that. But I, I think that in like oof, the 90s, the early odds, like when I was in college, I don't it would have felt like really controversial to say that it would have felt like you were giving the right wingers some corner. Like well, in the Bush years, it would have felt like you were making some confession. And I, I mean, I definitely still think that that exists to a degree, you know, but at the end of the day, um, just the way that our economic circumstances are influencing birth overall um, is it's honestly going to be a real economic problem for us shortly um, as we have an aging population is already happening in Japan where, you know, um, their elderly population is far outpacing new births, you know, Um, and um, I mean, yeah. And obviously if people, abortion's always going to have a place in our society, but also I, I know that a lot of people are making those decisions about it because of their economic circumstance or because, I mean, or because it can cost $30,000 to have a baby just at a hospital, you know? <laughs> right. Um, Not to mention, oh, who can afford to have, like, I'm about to move into my first one bedroom apartment ever. I'm 36 years old. I mean, these are my choices, right? I'm choosing to live in more expensive cities and more expensive parts of town. Like, like don't, don't feel bad for me. But I'm thinking about the fact that I'm about next month to move into my first apartment where there's a door to my bed. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and trying to imagine a world where like I have to I have to have multiple rooms, like two bedrooms because I have a child. Oh, boy. I don't see it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's the you know, those are the, like the conversations that I keep having, you know, um, I mean, I'm 32. So, you know, I'm like, will I or won't I, you know, want to have kids? And mm. and I when I ask people who are firm, so many people I know are like, hell no, I'll never do it. And then mm-hmm. if I'm like, if you had the money, <laughs> mm-hmm. would that change your mind? You know, um, because like the thought of having a child shouldn't completely, you know, collapse your entire life. <laughs> um, and yeah. we, actually, we need children to continue to be born to some degree <laughs> um, for yeah. the human race to continue. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, like God bless immigration. Like, like right? it doesn't have to be like a breeding issue. There's plenty of people. You know no. what I mean? There's, no, there's... definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that people should be forced to, but I'm just saying if people <laughs> want to, definitely not. Well, <laughs> no, but I, I, and I really never understood that uh, that rally. I mean, I never because I always have thought to myself, well, why don't we, um, you know you can't just say, oh, well, people want abortion to be illegal because people hate women or people with uteruses. Like, that's what you hear a lot, I feel like. Mm -hmm. But I feel like at the end of the day, it is because they're trying to force people uh, to continue to have children so that they can be workers. I mean, (laughs) give birth to the the person to 
Yeah, we will not be forced to birth your exploited workforce. Oh, I'm going to record that into a I mean, too. I want it on a t-shirt personally. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah, and I mean, and that's what, I mean, I even talked to my mom about, she's like, nothing has changed since I had you. Like the circumstances has gotten no better, if not worse, you know, mm-hmm. worse for um, all of these things. You still have no option, you know, for uh, paid leave or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um so, but yeah, I was just, I'm always curious in like how we can message that to kind of co-opt some of those narratives around, you know, being about families because mm-hmm. like depriving people of, of being able to have children if they want to is certainly not aligned with fam- family values. <laughs> yeah. If people are interested, when we did the episode of Hear the Burn about student loan debt, uh, it was one of my favorites because I asked everybody, you know, in the office what they would do if they didn't have the debt anymore. And the first, the, the podcast opens kind of cheekily, given that it was a political campaign, with um, one of my colleagues saying, do you even know how much sperm costs? <laughs> because <laughs> she's lesbian and she's like, well, I looked, you know, I had to, looked into how much it was going to cost for us to have in vitro and get impregnated. And it's like super expensive. And so that's part of her child planning process, you know. And, you know, so many people brought up children and, you know, taking care of their parents and buying their parents' mortgages so they can retire and all of this kind of stuff. It was the it was the most substantive, least frivolous conversation from all of these people who were working so hard and trying so hard in the way that student debt is dismissed when I know that those are the stories are, that are out there is, is really dispiriting. But I think that you're right. Making that family values pitch is a good a good part of this is a, is a good um, strategy rather. Grace, before I let you go, I also wanted to ask you the the third thing that I didn't, didn't bring up was to ask, you know, Marion Williamson is from Texas and she has a little bit of a spiritual bent. And I'm curious how you think she would fare in the Lone Star State. Cool. Um, that's definitely interesting. I don't know. My family moved to Texas. I never have lived there. Um, mm. So I've only, I've actually only been to visit one time. Oh, um, I'm just like I'm just like I yeah I don't know um, <laughs> no <laughs> um but yeah I mean I think you know I think there was a lot of hope that Texas was gonna flip and I mean I know some of my siblings are definitely like Beto people when that was a thing and um yeah so I mean I I think that speaking to the spirituality piece is important but I also think that evangelicals are kind of gonna write off. <laughs> Um, like the quote, you know, the spiritual type people. Um, I don't know. <laughs> All right, nope, no, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think it's an interesting question. Like, I'd love to see that experiment play out. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for calling in, Grace. That was very Thanks. thoughtful. Have a good right. night. Have a good night. Um, Kusha, you're up next. What's on your mind? Good evening, Brianna, and thank you very much for pronouncing my name so well. I really appreciate oh. it. Gold star. I was just taking a shot in the dark. <laughs> What's on your Very mind? Very well done. Uh, I just wanted to begin first and foremost by letting you know how fortunate it is that we have you, and not just your audience at the present moment, but in general in the United States uh, and the left in general to have you and your uh, incredible voice. And I really want to thank you tremendously for your incisive, analytical, erudite, brilliant, and in, in probing interviews in which you really steer the conversation and direction of the U.S. left, and I would say the left in general, in an excellent and necessary direction, whether that's when you were speaking with Shama Sawant or Marianne Williamson, Nina Turner, Dr. Jill Stein, 
uh, Affini, if I'm saying her name correctly, uh, Richard Wolf, Chris Hedges, Peter Kalmus, Varoufakis, Greenwald, Nader, you name it. Uh, with all of them, you do a great job. And um, you really serve as a crucial and endearing role model for me. Um, there's a phrase in Farsi my dad told me not too long ago. And it's, it means you chop heads with cotton, rhetorically that is. And it reminded me exactly of what Nina Turner told you um, not too long ago, if I remember correctly. And basically about how you politely, respectfully, masterfully go for the jugular is what she said. Go for the jugular. Mm -hmm. And that's when you challenge people, friends or otherwise, on Bad Faith and on other programs you appear on. And um, truly, I mean it, that you're one of my favorite uh, current broadcast journalists, alongside Crystal Ball, who's mentioned in this episode, and Aaron Maté, another one. Uh, who's active uh, in modern U.S. politics, and uh, Glenn Greenwald, who I know is a peer of yours as well, uh, among others, who, uh, but those were some who came to mind right now. That is so sweet. You guys are too good to me. <laughs> that is so kind of you to say. I, I really appreciate it, and I'm touched and I uh, humbled by it, and um, thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you for calling, and I said this in a different episode but honestly thank everybody here and everyone who listens i think i think we're really all bound together by the fact that we really do think change is possible and we're still trying and it takes a lot of courage in the face of some significant disappointments recently to keep trying and i really appreciate that all of you are still there um because it motivates me and it makes me back away from despairing moments and i learned so much from all of you so thank you Absolutely, Brianna. I mean, all that I said. And further, um, I really want to emphasize and affirm that you are absolutely the right person for the job of Bernie's press secretary. And, and building on that, I definitely wish that Sanders and his campaign, um, given that the theme of this episode is incumbents beware, not that I'm talking about like a challenger to Bernie Sanders um, in Vermont or anything, but rather that I really wish his campaign him your, being your former employer, followed more of your suggestions and more of your advice mm -hmm. instead of, because ultimately it seemed like Bernie went towards, I mean, it's, it's not seemed, evidently he went towards the establishment aligned advisors. I don't know who they were exactly by name on the campaign. You may know more, so I'm not asking you to name names or anything. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that what he did demonstrated that he got zilch for the poor and working class. And of course, I know Bernie Sanders is a person of incredible intentions and he has a, you know, 40 plus year career demonstrating such. I mean, he really as he always said, to bring people in the political process, bring people in the political process. It did for me, especially the second time around. Uh, the first time around, I was in high school, um, 2015-16, when he first started. And, um, you know, I always cared for him, and I always felt like he was much more sincere than everyone else. And I just didn't vote by the end in 2016. It's right when I started college. It was my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't vote um, – in, I, I don't know if I could have voted in the primary. I probably could have, but I wasn't too familiar with the system then because my birthday was in January and I live in California. Mm. But in the in the general election, like you did very courageously and bravely, and I really love that about you and Nina Turner, that n uh, neither of you held your tongue about Joe Biden. And instead you were condemning him, rightfully so, about, for instance, the 1994 uh, Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act and his, um, when his efforts to stop desegregation of school busing and all his support for the disastrous Iraq war that killed a precious million plus precious Iraqis and you name it. 
Uh, neither of you held your tongues, and I really appreciate that. Unlike Bernie, and I really wish, obviously it was a political calculation that he made, but I really wish he took your accounting um, and took your advice and, and built off of that. Because I feel like obviously what happened is it really stunted it. And you've noted it as well about the U.S. left is kind of in a like a quandary right now. And it made this greater liberation for just the society in general a little more difficult than it could have been. Obviously, it wouldn't have been perfect if Bernie Sanders went with a third party effort, went with Jill Stein on the Green Party ticket like she offered, Dr. Jill Stein like she offered. But it would have gotten us there a little bit closer, a little bit sooner. It would have made the infrastructure, as I think uh, Paula Jean Swearingen said in your interview with her about the infrastructure, it would have built that a little earlier. Things might have been more streamlined. Mm -hmm. And um, I really do wish they listened to you. And it's such a shame. And and honestly, for me, I was talking to my dad about it today as well. It's not like he can't still go in your direction as you and Hedges and Shamsawant and the many others who obviously he had his ears open to, but that in 2024, he could do such. But I, I think your predictions are reasonable about the calculations he made that he could be on a Senate Finance Committee and so on and so forth. And don't get me wrong, Bernie Sanders is a huge inspiration for me, yeah. as I'm sure he was for you and many others. Um, and that they rigged the primaries against him in 2016 and 2020. And with the superdelegates and the whole pick your candidates in a cigar-filled room was, I believe, mm-hmm. the Democratic lead statement. And of course, that you didn't hold your tongue about Elizabeth Warren after she attacked Sanders on CNN. And CNN was framing it in direction as if he was guaranteed to be the one who was lying about this whole thing that he said, I don't think a woman could become president, which obviously, if you look at his long political documented records, it shows his historical actions to be quite on the contrary. And uh, and her not consolidating her base of support around Bernie, unlike Buttigieg and Klobuchar, Harris, Obama, you name it, all the elite Dems. And this is all despite Obama saying, don't understand underestimate Biden's chances to, to F this up. I believe there was an article about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but yet, despite all this, despite how much dirt they throw on his name, how much they spit in his face, Hillary Clinton saying that he's on someone you can't ever work with, Biden giving him some more symbolic and meager concessions, they still bash him and bury him whenever it's an opportunity. He still just shows them so much courtesy. I don't understand that. It I, For me, I could never do that. Like, if someone was so disrespectful, until they acknowledged and affirm what they did was wrong, and at least sincerely apologize. I could never bend down so much to them. And you don't. And that's why I really cherish it. Well, I, look, that is all so kind of you to say. I don't know. I mean, I don't know where to start. Like, I, so I, for what, okay, I'll start here. I also, uh, one of my secret shames is that I didn't vote freshman year of college, my first opportunity to vote. And, you know, those Bush years are blood on my hands. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things, you know, like you're to your point, you're starting college, everything's happening and everyone's like, it's voting day. And I was like, am I registered? I don't know. I'm trying to get to class. You know, I learned my lesson, but I think that's a really good point to make because there are so many 18 year olds in that position. And that's part of why some people think that we should lower the voting age to at some point in high school, just so that people have that first voting experience while they're still living home with their parents and their parents can take them to the booth with them and register and mm-hmm. vote with them in mm-hmm. a way that would get a lot more youths participating. So there's mm-hmm. that. Also, you know, I learned a lot in the context of that campaign. And certainly when I started and barely when it finished, did I have the confidence to really 
push that hard for stuff because remember I'm very new to politics. I had never worked in a political campaign before. I felt I was very surprised when they asked me to take that role. It's not something that I would ever have put myself out for. And there wasn't a lot of infrastructure to make it clear exactly what my role was. I mean, I wasn't an advisor like Nina Turner. I wasn't on the road with Bernie Sanders in a way that, you know, the people who had his ear were. And so I can't really say that I was, you know, saying all of these things that everyone was hearing and then they were discarding my advice or anything like that. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. I would say things, but (laughs) there was no real mechanism to get anything up the chain except for that I would talk to Nina Turner sometimes. Mm -hmm. She would listen to me and we were on the same page about stuff, but she had to be very, you know, she had to exercise discretion with how many asks she would make of Bernie and how many Mm -hmm. times she was going to go to the mat. Cause you know, it's a limited resource getting someone to like make an exception for you and do this thing that you really want. Mm -hmm. And that, that format is not the format that is really conducive to having a whole strategic overhaul the way that I think that David Sirota, Senator Turner and a couple other allies on the campaign would have really liked to have seen. Mm -hmm. So lessons learned. I think I would be much more assertive if the campaign were today as opposed to, you know, two years ago, three years ago. But mm-hmm. um, I think that your analysis is spot on. And I just really appreciate um, all of your support. That's very kind of you, Brianna. I follow your work very closely, whether that's your bad faith YouTube videos or your tweets or articles you put out or when you appear on other channels, uh, I think it's very enriching for me. And I'm sure it is for many other people in, among your nearly 350,000 Twitter followers and those in this room. And um, you're a great person to cite and pass forward and, and mention in daily conversations. And uh, that's that's what I try to do. And uh, I, I was really curious to know a little bit more about your upbringing, if it's, if it's all right, if I could ask you that question. Because sure. I'm, um, I've heard you I've seen some of your tweets where you spoke a little briefly about your time growing up in Saudi Arabia and mm-hmm. um, the Middle East is very interesting for me. It's a place full of so many stories, deception, fraud, death, murder, war, genocide, you and love and, and, and ambition and aspiration. And, and the stories there are so uh, riveting. And well, so my stories to... are more um, <laughs> stories of a second and third grader. <laughs> well, still, no, that, I, I, I'm aware that it was during your childhood, and I know it was two years that you spent there. Still, though, I, I was really curious to know about your childhood experiences in Saudi Arabia, a little bit beyond what I've seen, because I, I, you put out some tweets about it. But, um, you know, like, for instance, I know you said that you had a Christmas tree culture of real trees but in Saudi Arabia, during that time, you broke from the custom and you had plastic trees and oh so on. Oh, my goodness. That is true. But when did I say that? Well, you said Sir, it. I just your Saudi your... Arabia tweets. <laughs> That's so funny. Like, I know that, it's, that is a true thing that I've said, but I can't remember. When on earth I would you have said that? you want to know the time of the tweet? I have the time of the tweet. Right oh, there. it was a tweet? LOL. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's true. I remember, you know, I, so I was born in D.C. We moved. To, my parents... We, my family isn't really from here, although my father's family is from Virginia and I've got family in Baltimore, but mm-hmm. they went to college here. They went to Howard and met at Howard. And when I was two, we moved to North Carolina. So we, my childhood in the States was very North Carolina and I have distinct mm-hmm. memories of going to the Christmas tree farm and, you know, mm-hmm. carrying the pine tree in the house and all the needles and the smell. And I absolutely loved it and loved Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then, and I, and I put a lot of like 
wait. I don't know. Somebody at some point must have said something about how like real trees are better than fake trees, which I know environmentalists, we've kind of changed our tune on that now, but this was the nineties. And I remember I must've internalized that somewhere as a kid, as like a point of pride or something. Cause I remember when we got to Saudi Arabia and we had to have the fake tree cause there's no real trees and the fake tree was contraband. <laughs> So it's like some other expat had the tree and then you like pass it on when you leave the country and like you can't let anyone know you have the tree. You can't have any external decorations. You can't have light showing through the window. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a whole, I mean, there's no alcohol, you know, it's like, it's like a, it's like a whole thing. Um, there was, um, so you live on a compound. It was huge. It was like, they called it Zadia city because it was like city like in size. And there were all these swimming pools and tennis courts and stuff. And it was heaven for me as a kid because I could go anywhere and do every, anything. And there was no safety concerns because a little bit of punitive punishment <laughs> there. So nobody, there's no petty crime or anything. I was Plus, curious like, to ask you about that as well, if, if possible, but please go on. Yeah, no, there's no petty crime. I mean, some some expats would go and watch like behandings and stuff as entertainment, mm. which my parents thought was extremely effed up because mm. my parents wow. are not weird, cruel, heinous people who want to watch somebody's hand be cut off. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- think about that. Like why mm-hmm. on earth? Anyway. Um, but there was a movie store on the compound that was also contraband, like a video rental wow. place. And it was somebody's house. And there was like, a series of like bookshelves kind of behind a wall. I don't want to say it's like a moving hidden wall or anything, but it was kind of, I remember being kind of tucked back in the back of this person's house and the tapes had no like covers or anything. It wasn't like an official tape. It was like blank white boxes. And there was like a book that you would flip through with the labels of the titles that they had and the new stuff in. And you could like surreptitiously get movies to watch from America late because there were no movie theaters. Wow. Yeah, I know. Weren't they banned like in the 70s? I think Correct. it was after the king was assassinated, right? King uh, Faisal, right? Yeah. Uh, by- so there, there was there was one on the compound that they had built and then they banned movie theaters like immediately after it was built or maybe before they were it was even done in construction. So you used to like the bad kids used to ride their bikes over there and do bad kid things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, that reminds me of this video I've seen of this young child. Well, now he's a little bit older. But I believe he's of British-Irish ancestry, Obeyed Fox. And he's like exactly as those kids you described just now, the bad kids. Well, they do some naughty things, rather. And they go and they have fun around Saudi Arabia. And now I think he's like 16, 17. But he has a bunch of YouTube videos going all around Saudi Arabia. And he speaks Arabic very fluently. And mm. his parents converted to Islam. And he was, he's there. And he makes videos regularly. And they have like fun kid activities, too, which is very surprising and very fun for me to watch. And it reminded mm. me exactly of what you just said. Well, they used to kick you out uh, when you hit puberty. They used to not let Western kids stay. Like the school ended at like eighth or eighth or ninth grade, so everyone had to leave when they like turned thirteen or fourteen. Uh, expats did because they didn't mm. want the Western kids and their influence. Which you know, fair enough. <laughs> and so you were there, Brianna, during like second and third grade. Is that mm-hmm. when you were eight and nine years old? Mm-hmm. Ninety, oh. ninety-three, ninety-four. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. I see. I see. And then so uh, I was trying to build on exactly what you were mentioning about like this culture of beheading slash behandings in Saudi Arabia, because uh, you were talking exactly about how heinous it is, the practice. And of course, Saudi Arabia 
is a culture or rather a society. It has a government in which beheadings are so common, mind you, uh, let alone be, uh, behandings. And I was looking at an article from The Independent published April 15, 2020 by Rory Sullivan that when Salman bin Abdulaziz took power in 2015, following his brother, King Abdullah, and it's amazing how all the Saudi kings after the first one, Ibn Saud, who was king during Roosevelt's time when the first oil gas allegiance was formed, have been brothers. Mm -hmm. But that it averages out to about 160 beheadings a year because there's been about 800 beheadings from uh, 2015 to 2020, uh, April, Mm -hmm. when that article was written. So about a beheading every two or three days. And mm-hmm. is that, uh, were you ever near, I don't know, were you mm-hmm. uh, living in just Riyadh? Were you living in one city, multiple cities, or were you in Riyadh? Because I know mm-hmm. Riyadh is where they have that famous beheading square, Dira. And I'm really curious to know, like, are there spooky stories, scary stories? Obviously, they're mm-hmm. not just spooky and ghosts, like, they're real. Were there scary stories you heard about when you were a little girl there and, like, people tried to scare you about it? Or you, you just kind of, your parents no. hid that away from you? That's something no. I'm really curious about. I, we were in Jeddah. So first of all, which at the time I hear it's, I don't know, changed, but at the time it was considerably less strict than Riyadh. Mm-hmm. Um, that was changing even when we were there, but you know, in Jeddah, you could kind of walk around without your head covered mostly. Oh, wow. Sort of. I mean, the metal, like the religious police called the metal would come sometimes and like tap your husband on the shoulder and say, your wife needs to put a scarf on. So you would keep one mm-hmm. in the car but you would you would have to like wear an abaya, but you didn't have to cover your hair unless you had like if you had like big yellow hair or something like there was a teacher who had like big curly blonde hair mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she was always getting in trouble. Well, her husband was always getting in trouble and he would be like, please, wife, put your <laughs> cover your hair. And she'd be like, no, I'm an independent woman. I'm going to do what I want. So he always oh he kept getting like arrested and she like. No, did not recognize the gravity of the situation. It was like one of those 90 day fiance situations where the Westerner goes to the other, you know, 90 day the other day. Does anyone watch that? And the Westerner is always like, why can't we kiss in public? And the, you know, the Moroccan boyfriend will be like, please, ma'am, like, I'll be affectionate with you when you get home. You have to recognize we're in a different cultural context. And the American always thinks they're going to do a feminism and change the whole country with, by making out with them at the souk. At any rate. I've, I've digressed. The point is that, um, no, we didn't really talk about any of that, except for that. I remember my parents having conversations about how gross it was that the other, some of the other expat teachers, they were, they, we were there, they were teachers at the international school. Mm. How some of the other expat teachers like thought that was a fun thing to go and look at and how they were very weirded out by that. That's, that's literally the sum total of what I remember about any of that. Makes sense for a little young child. Um, and then, so if I'm not mistaken, I'm really curious about, because as far as I've seen you speak uh, more so probably than you've written, you're not particularly religious. And I think you mentioned that when in reference to like Marion Williamson, how, and you even mentioned it like during this episode about how she has a spiritual element to her when she, when she speaks and when she uh, goes on various platforms and she really kind of uh, makes it a part of her craft, uh, especially since her uh, when she first burst onto the scene with her writings and her self-help uh, space work. And I'm really curious about the religious background in your family, because if I'm not mistaken, your grandfather was a member of the Nation of Islam. Is that correct? Um, mm-hmm. And it was his wife, your grandmother, also? Ronald X. Um, yes, his wife is my mom's mom. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, also a practicing Muslim, or? No, she was whatever Barbara Jean wanted to be. She, you know, was Buddhist for a while and did transcendental meditation and 
she was just a hippie. Uh, and now she's Christian. Everybody gets old and becomes Christian, but, uh, she was well, not, you know, she was not, she was a hippie. She was a free, she was kind of a free spirit, but my grandfather was pretty militant in, really? in his like, not just in terms of religion. He wasn't like practicing. He, the only thing that he did that was even vaguely Muslim was not eat pork. <laughs> what uh, about but the he certainly drank. <laughs> yeah, he certainly drank and, you know, did other things that aren't especially godly. <laughs> oh, okay. um, but he was very political and extremely smart mm. and could argue anybody under the table that had an eighth grade education and wasn't especially literate and would was very ashamed of that and would never let anybody know and mm. would watch TV maniacally and know everything about everybody and could tell you any senator from any state and all of those things. Wow. And I mean, had a crit critique for anyone. You couldn't, he was such a Pisces. You couldn't, you couldn't win a great, sometimes we would try to cut him off and say something you know, unpopular to get him to agree with me about something mm -hmm. like, you know, I don't like Obama. Like he would think he would be, get, be able to get me about Obama and then he would switch it up on me. Like, well, Obama did this one thing. What do you think about that? And I'm like, God damn it. Like I was just trying to not be adversarial with you for one second. Um, but he was at the root of a lot of my mother's political uh, education. And I think her openness to different kinds of politics and her um, radicalism that started before she got to Howard. And in fact, she found Howard to be rather um, provincial in some ways uh, and conservative. The student body was mm. given the mm. environment that she had come out in Cleveland. I got to tell you though, I had intended to wrap at 10 and as much as I'm enjoying being interviewed for once and <laughs> not doing the interviewing, I feel bad because there's a very long queue but I, I got to tell you guys, Absolutely. I'm not going to get to. I see you back there, Day and Sierra and Brian and Ted and Molly and John and Case and Serene and Rob and Brent and Wyatt and Scott. I see you all. And I am sorry. But I think this is what we should do. I really do have to wrap because I have to finish my radar and I have to go to the gym. I'm not going to be able to wash my hair, which is a real bummer. I really wanted to not be wearing the sad, tired bun on the show tomorrow, but I'm already making sacrifices here. <laughs> so I think what I'm going to try to do is to do a third. I don't know if I can do it tomorrow. It might be Wednesday, but I'm going to try to hop on this again and do it with the video. Mm -hmm. Do it with a live stream at the same time. Very nice. Well, and I'm sorry to deprive everyone else of your wonderful commentary and dialogue. I'm really grateful, though, that I was able to um, get these very... No, uh, if anything, you, you kept us all, you kept us in this for eight minutes longer than we would have been in it. So cost benefit, I don't know, winners and losers, but I really do appreciate you. I've, I've enjoyed this. I had a little bit of a stressful day, and I guess the stress is about to pick back up again as I frantically try to finish this radar. Um, but this has been a lovely interlude for me that I'm truly just really enjoying talking to you guys and getting to know the folks who listen to the podcast. So I want to thank all of you guys for helping me decompress. I want to thank Joe Biden for uh, making me laugh today. Super strong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to all of you, I want to say keep the faith and hopefully I'll see you a little bit later this week before Thursday and we can do a live stream for all the people with the androids. Um, so they don't feel quite so left out. Solidarity. Keep the faith. Thank you, guys.
Oh, wait, before you go, <laughs> I keep forgetting um, to ask you guys to clip. There were so many lovely moments in this episode. If you said something, if we had an exchange, you asked a really good question, remember that you can clip it and in, in this app and mm-hmm. it will like save to your feed and it, I can download basically an audiogram. So like the, the, the section of the audio with the words transcribed on top mm-hmm. and a picture that is nice for me to push to social media so I can share bits of this conversation with other people and they can figure out, you know, why they should come and join the next time. So if you do that, I don't really have the bandwidth to produce and cut and clip and find stuff or one more thing in my life. So if you guys go ahead and do that, I will push it to social media. I'll push it to Twitter and Instagram and stuff, and I would really appreciate it. Okay, that's all. Keep sure. it <laughs> Yeah. I can, should I get that through Instagram? Sorry? Would you, no, you like do it in this app? app. So oh, there's like scissors. Once this, once I in this in this call, mm-hmm. and I will post it, and it will be public. Come back to the episode and find like the timestamp. You can like search the transcript for when you mm-hmm. talked or whatever part you liked, and you can clip it, and it will it will appear under the podcast as like a a clip that someone mm-hmm. has made, and then I can just push it very easily to social. Very nice. Yeah, I was trying to do that after one of my conversations before with Aaron Mate, but I didn't really understand how to do that and put it on Instagram stories with the audio and whatnot. But I definitely saw that clip feature. So I'll definitely be doing that. And as you suggested, thank you very much, Brianna. Thank you. I appreciate you. Sorry for the head fake. All right. Good night, guys. No worries. Good night. Bye. in the tall grass wish i had a pilot in a podcast wish i had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats wish i had a million dollars i wish i had a million hours i wish i had a million problems that way i couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes i wish i found a genie lamp i wish them girls gave me them sugar like beanie man yeah i wish i was a comedian a late night sitcom syndicated on tv land this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time we dive in, it feels just like this.